from KQED. Before we get to this week's episode, I have a favor to ask you, dear, dear listeners. Since you know a lot about us by this point, after 40 plus episodes, we naturally want to know a bit more about you and what you think of our show. Head on over to KQED Pop on Twitter to take our cute little survey. We really, really appreciate it. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, I'm Emmanuel. I'm Carly. And I'm Jamidra. And we're the hosts of The The Cooler, your weekly dose of pop culture commentary. So later in this episode, Chuck Klosterman will be in a studio with us. Yes! He's a cultural critic. He's a writer who's been around the world in IAI. But before we talk to him, I thought it would be fun if we go around the table and ask each other some questions from his book, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. The section is called The 23 Questions I Ask Everybody I Meet in Order to Decide If I Can Really Love Them. Are you ready for this? I'm so ready. Let's do it. All right, scenario number one. You meet your soulmate. Yay. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> However, there's a catch. Oh, is it? Every three years, someone will break both of your soulmate's collarbones oh my God. with a crescent wrench. And there's only one way you can stop this from happening. You must swallow a pill that will make every song you hear for the rest of your life sound as if it's being performed by the band Alice in Chains. <laughs> when you hear a commercial jingle on TV, Alice in Chains. If you sing to yourself in the shower, Alison Chains. So, would you swallow the pill? Well, first of all, I should say that I don't want us to alienate our frankly massive Huge. demographic of Alison <laughs> Chains fans. That's really important to me. Oh, I don't know if I could do it, though. <laughs> really don't. So, No pill. Bro- broken collarbones. Sorry, every three mate. years, wrench. It, well, let's face it, it's not me that it's happening to. Yeah. So, <laughs> you'll be the, at the bedside helping. Exactly. Jamita. Oh, okay. So considering that my soulmate actually did ha- get his collarbone broken <gasps> when uh, we had small children and he had to go through the surgery. So I know what the recovery process is like. Mm. So can I get some specifics on the Allison in Chains pill? Like it's like every three years this happens or this is like every day for the rest of my life? All your life. Oh, mm. Lord. Okay. I love my husband. I think I would swallow the pill and I would just join a band. <laughs> Off top. You're like, if it worked for Alison Chains, it'll work for me. I'm going to be famous on tour with Beyonce or something. Wrap that one up. Okay, here we go. Second scenario. At long last, somebody invents the dream VCR. Hold on. VCR. <laughs> okay. The, I'm going to go with it. Suspend my... Suspend yeah. the disbelief. This was written in 2001. <laughs> some, some olden time. So at long last, somebody invents the dream VCR. This machine allows you to tape an entire evening's worth of your own dreams. Oh, which you can then watch at your leisure. However, the inventor of the dream VCR will only allow you to see this device if you agree to a strange caveat. When you watch your dreams, you must do so with your family and your closest friends in the same room. They get to watch your dreams along with you. And if you don't agree to this, you can't use the dream VCR. Would you still do it? Absolutely not. (laughs) I could not watch my dreams with my friends and family. I feel aghast sometimes waking up having dreamt what I have dreamt. Mm -hmm. 
Could I'm not, picturing it right now. Could not, will not, <laughs> would not. So that's a no for Carly, Emmanuel? I would. <gasps> I mean, I wanted to be on The Real World when I was younger. This would just be a different version, The Dream World. And it would be a reality show about me and everyone watches it? Sure. <laughs> Let's do that. So I will say that I agree with Emmanuel because when I was younger, I used to want people to be able to read my mind because I just felt like life would be so much easier. It would be complicated, but I felt like if they knew everything that I was thinking at all times, it would make me a better person. There you go. So look at my dreams. All the smut. All <laughs> of it. Just <laughs> This is me. Love me for me, people. You two are weird. <laughs> okay. Well, who's weirder? We're allowing the world to see how weird we are. You are scared of what they'll think. What so maybe if, you're the weird one. What if you're in my dreams? <gasps> I hope I am. <laughs> I actually don't think you have been. But, you know, we all dream about people we know, yeah. is what I'm saying. So you just got to be very, very careful. I hope when I do make my debut in your dreams, I'm wearing like a silk robe. Oh, <laughs> you'd be lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. <laughs> He writes, defying all expectation, a group of Scottish marine biologists capture a live Loch Ness monster. In an almost unbelievable coincidence, a bear hunter shoots a Sasquatch in the thigh, thereby allowing zoologists to take the furry monster into captivity. Oh, no. These events happen on the same afternoon. That evening the president announces he may have thyroid cancer and will undergo a biopsy later that week. You are the front page editor of the New York Times. What do you play as the biggest story? Loch Ness Monster, Sasquatch, president has thyroid cancer. Yikes. Um, Here's what I'm going to say. The president's important. He obviously felt that the Sasquatch and the Loch Ness Monster were stealing his shine or her shine. Mm Mm-hmm. We don't know what world this is. And that was some Kim Kardashian stuff, like health scare. So you know what? I'm not going to give it to the president because... Because he's an attention seeker <laughs> is what you seem to be implying. I think he's lying for ratings and for the front page. I'm going to give it to Loch Ness Monster Discovery. Jamidra. Mm. Mm. All right, so check it out. <laughs> this one I'm due. I'm a print. One copy of the Loch Ness Monster on the cover... One copy of Sasquatch on the cover. I'm going to go to the president and have him hold both of the magazines <gasps> and take a picture and put that picture on the cover. You cracked the case. <laughs> With like a P.S. I have a, a very serious thyroid issue? Yeah. Yes. Yes. It'll be a portrait. It's very nice. Very tasteful. Tasteful. Wow. <laughs> Next scenario. You meet the perfect person. Oh. Romantically, this person is ideal. You find them physically attractive. That's a plus. Intellectually stimulating, great. Consistently funny, that'll do. And deeply compassionate, okay. However, they have one quirk. This individual is obsessed with Jim Henson's gothic puppet fantasy, (laughs) The Dark Crystal. (laughs) Beyond watching it on DVD at least once a month, he or she peppers casual conversation with Dark Crystal references, uses Dark Crystal analogies to explain everyday events, and occasionally likes to talk intensely about the film's deeper philosophy. Would this be enough to stop you from marrying this individual? Absolutely not. I, I think this sounds like a wonderful addition to our daily lives. Who doesn't love the Dark Crystal? Come on. It's really dark. It's, not, it's called that for a reason. It's, it's a dark film. Kids shouldn't watch it. And this person will always be bringing up dark nonsense into your life. <laughs> and, but they have a little girlflings and they're so sweet. And No, this is, this is not a deal breaker. God, I've had worse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so first of all, I don't even know what the dark crystal is. So oh. Let me just start by saying that. Second, let me just start by saying that I'm married uh, into a hippie family, so there are plenty of references that are said all the time, and I have no idea what they're talking about. So this will be no different. I'm going to opt in to the dark crystal. In fact, I think I did marry a man who is technically this whole scenario. He's probably right talking here. about it all the time, and you're like, what? What did you say? So I'm in. You're in. Both in. You guys are true lovers. Yeah. So how about you, Emmanuel? Because we share a birthday. Actually, it's one day apart, but I'm just going to claim it. Just go with it. Jim Henson, <gasps> born September 24th. Oh. I was born September 25th. Hello, hello. He went to the same college as me. There was a whole event about honoring him with his bench, and it's a bronze statue of him and Kermit oh. on campus. They gave out cupcakes with the Muppets on them. So I love Jim Henson. Don't really remember this movie, but <laughs> I re- you would after having this person in your life. But yeah, this person will bring that in my life, and great, and also the love and compassion and funniness. Okay, guys, this is a this is a doozy. Here we go. <laughs> Every person you have ever slept with, and I don't mean bunk beds, <laughs> is invited. <laughs> To a banquet where you are the guest of honor. No one will be in attendance except for you, the collection of former lovers, and the catering service. Oh. After the meal, you were asked to give a 15 minute speech to the assembly. Wow. What do you talk about? What? <laughs> what do you talk about to all those people that have seen you like that? Like that. (laughs) All right, so everybody's in the same room, including my husband? Yeah. Yep, if he's one of the people. You guys have, right? (laughs) Well, we had three kids somehow. The milkman. So I think probably my whole speech would be about how uncomfortable and how awkward I am. Like, I would basically just turn it into a stand-up routine. Yeah. And then I'd be like, I'd try to do something so my husband wouldn't feel completely awkward. Oddly enough, everybody on my list, I'm pretty cool with still like i'm like hey if i saw him in the traffic i'd be like hey what's up so I, i'm go with i'm gonna go with the stand-up routine and i will talk about how it was probably the best nights of their lives oh <laughs> wow and that made me remember that in high school i took out a page in the back in which i wrote a message here we go to my high school sweetheart in which i said if we grow up and get married, we'll look back on this yearbook at some as one of the happiest times of our lives. If you don't marry me, show this yearbook to your wife so she can see the white the woman she'll never be. <gasps> I was like seventeen <laughs> and I ahead. thought we were gonna get married. Obviously it didn't work out that way and I'm really sorry about that. So that was a whole side. Does he have a wife? He does have a wife. Is she reading that yearbook did, right I now? No, she did not read that yearbook. Well, I think she's gonna find it now. <laughs> this is also the same guy who was one of my prom dates, if we like rewind back to the live event. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So basically, I would just do a stand-up routine. I'd be like, "It was great, but it's greater with my husband." Thank you. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> Emmanuel, <laughs> follow how, that if you will. How? How? <laughs> I think I would sing for fifteen minutes. Oh, you? <gasps> what would you sing? More specifically, what George Michael number would you sing? <laughs> I would say I'm gonna go with Kate Bush, uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> Right, like a mashup? Sure, we would do a mashup, but um, the first thing that came to my mind is the greatest love of all. Oh, wow. Just like going for it. 
<laughs> and sure, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 22 by yeah. Taylor. Oh. Feeling a 22-year-old. <laughs> feeling up a 22-year-old. Got it. And if not the 22 song, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal and all the people at this banquet that I've had sex with. Because it was cute. It was fun. But I've moved on. You have too. Let's just leave it at that. So he calls me up and he's like, I still love you. And I'm like, I'm just, I mean, this is exhausting, you know? Like, we're never getting back together. Like, ever. Well, that was really fun and illuminating and terrifying in parts. Yes. So if you want more of those scenarios that will terrify you or entertain you or whatever you got out of this. Or arouse you. Or arouse, yeah. <laughs> you can find more of these in Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, a book by Chuck Klosterman who we're about to talk to right after this break. Today, we're joined by Chuck Klosterman. His name might sound familiar because you either read his pop culture essay collection, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, or any of his other eight books. It might also sound familiar because you read The New York Times or The Washington Post or GQ, Esquire, Spin, The Guardian. I could go on. Um, somewhere between all this writing, he managed to find time to hang in the studio with us today. Welcome to the cooler, Chuck. Hello. Welcome. It's great to be here. Yes. And you're making history mm -hmm. because... I, I'm excited about this. Yeah. 40 plus episodes deep, you are the first straight white man on the cooler ever. We should have brought confetti. Like, I know. I'm, just... I, like, I, I'm the reverse Jackie Robinson. <laughs> yes. And of course, as a white straight male, obviously I can essentially buy this entire building right now with what's totally. in my wallet because, you know, I'm running the world. Yes. All that privilege. <laughs> Proud moment. <Yeah. laughs> Thanks for making time, Chuck. Yeah, I kind of, I'm the, I'm sort of like, I feel like Trump, you know. Like, <laughs> yes. yeah, oh, yeah, you know? We just went there. I'll so, bring some hairspray. Can we just do something? <laughs> We're straight into okay. Trump. No beating around the bush. We're straight in there. Minute one. Yeah. Okay. You just explained Trump's whole trajectory and how he got to where he is. Nailed it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Boom. He showed up with a wallet. Yeah. Done. <laughs> so I'm super glad that you're here to talk about your newest book. But what if we're wrong? Because frankly, my friends are getting really tired of me freaking out about random things. Like, I'll just interrupt someone's story and be like, did you know Civil War vets are the reason we have college football? And they're like, where'd you get that? And I'm like, this book, you should read it. So, yeah. For those who haven't yet had the pleasure of freaking out over this book, what's your elevator pitch for it? I got like eight seconds or 15 uh, seconds. You can have yeah. 60. Well, you know, I, I have to say the title and the subtitle are pretty expository. I mean, the title of the book is, but what if we're wrong? Yeah. So in some ways, the book is about questions that seem so obvious that they don't even feel like they're questions. They just feel like kind of accepted truths about reality. But the history of ideas is kind of the history of people being wrong. So the idea is, what are things that we might be wrong about now that we're not really even putting on the table as up for debate? The subtitle is thinking about the present as if it were the past. And in some ways, that might be even a little more accurate in the sense that most of this book is an attempt to visualize how people in a 100 or 300 or even a 1,000 years will look back at this period of time in much the same way that we look back at the 1800s or the 1500s or the Dark Ages. Napoleon said, history is a set of lies agreed upon. I learned that from your book, and I freaked out about that, too. <laughs> well, it's pretty freaky. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> we're just making it up as we go. It's like, yeah, this happened in 1650, we well, think. It, it, it sounds about right. It, it, I guess the, in some ways the premise is this. It's like we would think that because we're alive right now that we would be the best gauge for what is actually happening. 
so that our perception of this reality would be the most accurate and in a logical world, the one that exists. But that doesn't seem to be the way history unspools. What it tends to happen is it's people who live later who go back and reinterpret the events to sort of fit the meaning of what they need the past to mean. And that becomes galvanized as what history was. So somehow by actually experiencing this time, we're in the worst position to actually explain what the culture means now or what, you know, it's a, it's this bizarre paradox, but it's kind of been this way forever. Hence us being wrong about a lot of things. Mm, We're just wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, we even use that phrase, be on the right side of history. (laughs) It's so damn hard to work out for some people what that is. Well, it is because that changes. You guys were talking about like Harriet Tubman Mm -hmm. being on, you know, on the 20. Imagine going back to even 1968 and first forwarding the idea that Harriet Tubman is going to be on currency. For a lot of people, they wouldn't at that point even be aware who that was. Okay, so that would seem pretty crazy in and of itself. But then if you went on to say, and you know, they were actually going to replace Alexander Hamilton, but the success of a Broadway play <laughs> altered the perception of this president. People would be like, what are you talking about? And yet these things happen. And this is recent history. This is less than 50 years. So the idea of trying to think about a world the way it will appear in 250 years, it gets very complicated because you're not even talking really about the merit of things. Something is important because it's connected to this other thing that it had no relationship to in the present tense. Hmm. Well, I'm really curious to get your opinion on sort of like what future generations will think about us now. Because I feel like we have sort of like this technology renaissance. Everything is sort of like wrapped around this idea that you have to think outside of the box and anything is possible. But at the same time, we still struggle with like racism and sexism and all these other sort of like discrimination issues. So will future generations look back in like 200 years and think we're just complete idiots or? Well, you know, the technology thing is real central to this. Let's say in the future there is a move away from technology. It's kind of weird to imagine this now, but let's say in a few generations, kids feel as though there's an oppressive quality to technology. I don't that, think that's hard. I don't think that's yes, hard to Yes, I mean, imagine. people have speculated. That said that yeah. Some people think that, like, the next generation of kids will not want to use things like Facebook and, and like, mm-hmm. Snapchat. So, like, they'll, they'll see that as something that was, was obtrusive, almost. Yeah. Well, so let's say that continues. Then it might be that this period is seen almost as the peak of mankind's relationship with technology. That this era we're living through right now was sort of the height of people seeing technology as the essential component to progress, you know. Now, in terms of the other things you're talking about, still struggling with racism and and sexism and all these things, I suppose one could argue that they will say, well, this is still part of technology. This technology is allowing voices to exist that didn't exist before. So there was almost a renaissance of discourse, I don't know if those things are necessarily true, but in the future, when they want to talk about this period as having meaning, they're going to have to find an argument to make. They have to sort of explain it. A lot of this book is sort of about the process of reverse engineering. Like I talk about Moby Dick at one point in this book, how like Herman Melville writes Moby Dick and he thinks, this is my masterpiece. Like this is, you know, what I will be known for. Uh, But it comes out and it gets mixed reviews and it doesn't sell that well kind of ruins his life, becomes an alcoholic and he dies. Okay, Ooh. But then many years after his death, after World War I, the book was sort of rediscovered, not just as like, oh, this is 
book is good. It's like, this is the book. This is the American novel. This is what an American novelist aspires to. So now we have to explain why that happened. So they come up with all these reasons. They're like, well, people came back from World War One and they had fought this sort of amorphous enemy, which is sort of like battling a whale that you can't see. And that there was this brotherhood among soldiers. And that kind of matches the brotherhood you might feel on a whaling ship. And, you know, Moby Dick has all these chapters about, like, making rope, like all these technical things. If you fought in a war, you had to learn how to operate your rifle, learn all these technical things. So that becomes the explanation. I think a more accurate explanation is that a book needed to occupy this space. This is the one that got picked. And now we have to explain why we picked it. Mm. It's it's kind of a helpless thing. It's, it's sort of saying that history is capricious, but I think that's true. Mm. That's yeah. a scary thought, though. Yeah. Is it scary? It's weird. It's awkward to think that. But what's the scary part? I know what you mean, mm. but the more I think about it, the less I feel that this really is a problem. Speaking of disagreement yeah. and saying that things are wrong, the book, But What If We're Wrong, speaks a lot on things that we could be wrong about. Mm. The example I keep seeing coming up in reviews is The Beatles. Mm. It's, it's the splashy example <laughs> and it's what people can really latch on to. What do you most hope we're wrong about? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I hope it turns out that we're totally wrong about the relationship between nutrition and health. <laughs> <laughs> that just sounds like wishful thinking to well, me. Well, you know, but it makes us all healthier. But at the same time, it doesn't seem totally outside of the ballpark. I mean, there was a time when we were like, well, you know, we used to think illness came from the gods but now we know it's gnomes and trolls so like we're much better off like it doesn't seem totally impossible to me i'm saying this totally seriously that in 200 years somebody could say you know it's interesting back in the 20th century and the 21st century they just were certain that what you were eating was the reason that you were healthy or unhealthy and now we know that it's genetically based it was going to happen regardless which is why you always get that exception of that 110 year old woman in France who smoked a cigar every single day of her life <laughs> yeah. and, and she yeah. she's still going yeah. Yeah. well I mean there was I recently saw like I think she's the oldest woman in the United States now and and her thing was that I drink she drinks a Dr. Pepper every day and she yes. says, that's what her thing is you know and they she was being interviewed and and she was like, uh, every doctor I've had for the past 40 years has told me not to do this. And the reporter said, like, do you go back and kind of tell this to them now? And she's like, they're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Like she outlived oh. them all. Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> I will Revenge have the Dr. my Dr. Pepper. Pepper. Yes. Prescription from Dr. Pepper. Of course, there's prune juice in Dr. Pepper. So there, I guess you could make the argument that there is a small, particularly for an old person, maybe a benefit to getting a little bit of prune juice in your diet every day. But, you know. I think the psychological benefits of flouting uh, expert advice can sometimes be quite <laughs> that's, Yeah, maybe that's what it is. The ultimate shade right there. It's like, I will not, sir. Screw you. I will not. <laughs> So switching gears a little bit, there's been a lot of talk in the news recently about the Second Amendment and its importance. And everything we hear out of the Supreme Court is them always trying to decipher what a bunch of dead white dudes meant with the Constitution. In your book, you say that the Constitution might be our Achilles heel and that democracy might just be a, to quote Plato, charming anomaly. Yeah, I mean, the Constitution <laughs> might actually be the problem, but it's very difficult to even bring that into conversation. Yeah. Like, if I was running for office, and one of the things I was like is, you know, the Constitution might be our Achilles heel. Like, I couldn't even become city yeah, elder. You wouldn't right? be running for office yeah. anymore. It's like, people just like the idea of the Constitution, but when you really think of this, that was created not only at a different time, but also at a time when the country was much smaller, when everything we understood about firearms and many other things was different. But 
But because we've decided, well, this was the key to the success of the country, and maybe in the short term it absolutely was. Like the Constitution is a very good document in a limited sense. But if the intention for our society is to exist hundreds upon hundreds of years, expanded across this entire continent, it does seem a little strange that we're like, we're so inflexible about this document that in the 1970s, we'll attempt to add an amendment that's literally called the Equal Rights Amendment, and we're going to be no way. We can't, like, it's too, like, it's too mm. dangerous. To, like, we've made it so difficult to change the Constitution because we perceive it as being so central to what democracy is that we might be overlooking the possibility that everything has a shelf life. And if America does, you know, fade as a superpower, collapse, or however you want to look at it, you know, like uh, in, say, 300 years from now, I wonder if the obvious answer when people look back on it will be like, well, they were just too tied to this document. It became too central to the way they viewed everything that they almost made a decision that even if it has problems, we're just going to try to kind of get around these issues so the document stays intact. But the culture's accelerating and technology's accelerating. Things might be changing too fast to sort of ever think any one document can stand up. I mean, one example I kind of use in this book is like one of my grandmothers was born before the Wright brothers' flight. And she died at a time where we were bored going to the moon. Like we had stopped (laughs) in. Okay, so in her lifespan, it went from an inability to fly 100 yards to a point where it was boring to go to the moon. Is it really possible for anyone to intellectually and emotionally evolve at the same speed that technology does. Technology is changing so rapidly. I don't know if it's if it's reasonable to expect any person to sort of evolve at that speed. So based on what you said here today, I'm assuming you won't be running as Kanye West's running mate in 2020 because <laughs> they will just not vote you in. Well, you know, yes, I, I would be more interested in being, you know, Secretary of Treasury for okay. Kanye. I think that that would be a That would be quite a, the position. Yes. <laughs> There'd be a lot of waving of money at people, you know. It's like the shoe budget would be very high. Yes. But the military would be shelved and we'd just buy, like, sweatpants, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Every generation feels like that they are the generation, like they've reached sort of the apex of knowledge and human capability. And then, you know, electricity Uh. and Facebook and iPhones and, you know, and so you have expressed this idea that sort of like, will we or have we reached the end of knowledge? What makes you think that that's a possibility? I don't think we have, but I I know that that sensation exists because like there's there's certain things that um, it seems as though the really big questions might just be too big. You know, that there'll be no that we that we that there's many, many small questions and we're kind of eating them up as we go. But the really big questions like why do we exist at all? Mm. Why is there something instead of nothing That, that these are actually too big a chasm? We never get there. The idea of the end of knowledge, that sort of ties into a part in the book about science where I talked to two kind of celebrity scientists. One guy's Brian Greene. He's uh, He was like on an episode of the Big Bang Theory. He's like the superstar physicist from Columbia, <laughs> um, big string theory guy. And he kind of took this question. You know, I'd go in there and I'd be like, hey, I'm not trying to contradict your view of reality because your view is probably mine. But what's the possibility we might be wrong about these things? He was very much like, that's a great hypothetical. We might be wrong about everything. But I also talked to Neil deGrasse Tyson who was much more adversarial about this. Mm. And he, because he's the face of science now, and I think maybe he thought I was a climate change denier or like I was an anti-vaccination person (laughs) or something. So he was like, it's not going to be wrong. Like since the 1600s, 
we've sort of adopted the scientific method, which is that we test everything and we back it up with math and we're only refining our knowledge. Like this idea that there's going to be this big paradigm shift again, like there was during the age of Copernicus or whatever. He's like, that's not going to happen. Like we're only going to get a finer and finer point to this. That's so interesting. Um, So to him, even questioning it was toxic. I think that he thought it was, I don't know if he, toxic is maybe a little stronger than he would say, but I think he definitely thought it was silly and potentially damaging that I think that maybe he thought if you're going to say that we might be wrong about things like gravity, you're really just sort of unconsciously giving intellectual support to people with really bad ideas. You know, I think that's how he kind of perceived it. But as a scientist, of course, he kind of almost has to believe that. Like it would be really weird for him to say in some respects that I think there's a chance that my attempts to understand the universe are just running in place and that something else is going to replace this. So let's say he's right. Science is not going to shift again. Well, that would mean that the way we view reality is the way it is. Okay, So there's no longer this question about uh, what's next. It's like this is it. Um, It's kind of like I suppose an analogy would be like, you know, maybe when you're in your teens, you're like, someday I'm going to be an adult. And in your 20s, it's like, well, someday I'm going to be a real adult. But at some point you're 44 and it's like you're married. You're not feeling like an adult. Yeah, but you are. It's like like you got to accept like this is my life. Okay, what am I going to it's no longer that I'm living my life for a future life. This is it. I think what he would be arguing is like that's where we are in science. It's no longer what's next out there. It's like this is what it is. And what are we going to do about that now? It's kind of a different way to to frame curiosity that instead of looking for something more, it's more like what is the way to sort of accept what life is? I mean, I suppose some people would say that is an uncomfortable thing. So, I mean, I might be one of these people. I like the idea that life is unknown, but maybe it's not. His response to your questions could have something to do with that Twitter beef that he had a while back with the rapper. B.O.B. Which rapper oh, was. B.O.B. Yeah. B.O.B. <laughs> You're the new B.O.B. <laughs> and the new Jackie Robinson. Doesn't it feel great? <laughs> so we're running out of time. So we're going to have a lightning round. Okay. Insert ominous lightning sounds here. <laughs> okay. <it's> a- <laughs> um, so this question requires a shit ton of suspension of disbelief. So get prepared. You already spoke okay. about the Beatles a little bit. Yeah, I can do this. Okay. They're your I can, faves. I can suspend. But you love Kiss as well. Oh, yo, Kiss is my favorite band. Uh, the Beatles are the best band. Okay. faves yeah. and then favorites. Yeah. Okay. So here's the conundrum. You're all on the Titanic. You, the members of Kiss, the members of Beatles, pre them doing any music. You can only save one group. Mm. The other one will never make their music. Never. Who do you save? Oh, mm-hmm. I save the Beatles. Okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's one of those situations where you got to kind of look outside of yourself. Right. Also, <laughs> it's like Kiss can't exist without the Beatles. So, like, oh. if I save, if I save Kiss and the Beatles die, I mean, the guys in Kiss maybe end up factory employees. It's like it's not like they're going to steal the Kiss. <laughs> like the Beatles were their favorite band too. You solved the riddle immediately. <laughs> All right, so I'll go on to mine. I sometimes wonder, like, if, if the Kardashians have, like, ascended to a sense of modern American royalty. Mm-hmm. So when future generations look back, will the Kardashians be considered, like, the Kennedys? Will Calabasas be Camelot? Like, what have we done? Well, you know, that's a great question because here again, what the answer ends up being 
is how does the world change in 100 years and how do they look back at this period in a general sense? Let's say they look back at this period, let's say by some insane scenario or whatever. It's like, you know, like uh, people like Trump and Sarah Palin or whatever become the defining political figures. That because the the other political figures sort of fall by the wayside, but the impact they had. Then it's sort of like, well, this period of time was sort of defined by an embrace of the superficial and the mm-hmm. idea, like an almost an anti-intellectual sentiment. In which case, then the Kardashians look like a like a real sort of reflection of that, and that 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 they almost epitomize an anti-intellectual sort of reactionary, uh, shallow period of time culturally. If this period is looked back in a positive way, then the Kardashians are probably looked at as. Boy, the culture and society were so successful that people had time to watch a TV show about rich people doing nothing. Like it would almost be, it would almost be proof that our society worked. That's like that society was that, that it was so easy to be an American in the early 21st century that you could just watch a show with pretty attractive people talking about themselves and doing nothing. It's like the ultimate luxury. The Kardashians are proof that society works. Yeah. Oh, I can't even. <laughs> so the Bayhive wants to know, 500 years from now, will Beyonce be remembered at all or positively? What do you think? Well, this is an incredibly dangerous subject. I, I mean, it's like sort of, I saw somebody once they went out, like somebody wrote a review of Beyonce where they just said like, well, you know, she's a real important figure, but her music is only OK. And they were like, destroy this person. Destroy you. them. You Talk know? about toxic. Um, you hear the beehive? The beehive is buzzing right now. <laughs> you know, her career right now, it's I was going to say it hasn't been that long, but I guess Destiny's Child was big in 2000, yeah. 2001. Yeah, so it's been 90s. 16 years. The fact that. She's married to someone who is, you know, also very famous. Their marriage, I think, and like you're talking about Lemonade, that was sort of a, I don't know what the corollary in pop culture that was. Like that was a new thing, mm-hmm. kind of the way that, that uh, 500 years, I would say no, to be honest. I think it's, I think that, that. Even the Beatles are like really a roll – or Bob Dylan or whatever is a roll of the dice for 500 yeah. years. I mean uh, I, I think that she'll certainly be remembered in 50 years. But right. you know it's – things are changing so quickly. When you know Kanye West makes a sh- song with Paul McCartney, there are many people – you see articles on BuzzFeed or whatever where it's like tweets of people who are like, who's, who's Paul that? McCartney? <laughs> yeah. um, but, and it, all, it always seems hilarious, but like in a way that makes sense. I mean back in the 1960s and 70s, did we expect the average teenager to know who Glenn Miller was or whatever? It's like you know, time has passed. Think, you know, He's still alive, but time has passed. But with popular culture specifically, it is hard for that to find – that kind of long-term traction because part of the reason we like popular culture is to a degree it's disposable. It's not like school. It's something that you can just sort of be into for a summer, you know? Mm -hmm. So that makes it hard for it to last a long time. I think Kanye West would disagree with you because he has on many occasions (laughs) declared himself the greatest artist of all time. So are you saying that in 500 years that people will not remember the sun dies? Kanye definitely (laughs) has an interesting circle of people he likes to compare himself to. I mean, it's, it's, you know, he'll he'll just sort of, you know, he'll kind of throw Picasso in there. (laughs) Always Picasso. It's strange where like a guy can be that mad about someone not offering him 
a lot of money to design clothes even though he hasn't done it that much before. I mean it's like a weird thing to be mad about. I can see wanting to do it but to be outraged because yeah. this has happened. You know? It would be kind of like if I was like why isn't anyone giving me money to sort of create a new space program? It's like I'm out. I can't believe it. Yeah, it's like it's, they're, they're against me somehow. So if people in 2,222 only remember one thing about you, what would you want that thing to be? Oh, so they're going to remember me? Yeah. Well, one thing. One thing. Well, you know, this is a weird answer, but I almost sort of kind of could go for some bizarre connection that doesn't really say anything about me. Like, I always think of, like, General Zoe's chicken. Okay. <laughs> like, I love General Zoe's chicken, Explain. right? Now, this guy, General Zoe, was a real general in China, you know, long ago. And we don't really know why. It was like, that. He, did he give his troops this? Was this what he ate when he won or lost? <laughs> no one knows. But everyone knows what General Tso's chicken is. Yeah. And I would, so I, would, I think it would be kind of interesting if somehow the memory of me did exist, but it had nothing to do with writing or my personality. It would be like somehow like in the future, there's a specific kind of like way uh, people design belts. <laughs> and it would be like, well, that's a Klosterman belt. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like yeah. a close, that's what they, and that's like, oh, you, you can get a black belt, sure, but uh, the Klosterman belt, I think, will, <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't even wear belts that much. I mean, I have a belt on now, but I think that would be neat. I would like it to be something that is just like, has 1% connected to my life, but says nothing about me. Yeah, so yeah. like nice. the Klosterman saltwater taffy. You yeah, ha- you had it once in your life, and that's enough. Or like it's a flavor of saltwater taffy. Yeah, it's like you know, it's like <laughs> I, I, uh, the blue raspberry is too tart. The Klosterman ones, though, they're actually I don't know. It's kind of like caramel, but not really. You know, yeah. it's, it's quite chucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Love it. So. It's customary that we end every episode with a song, and I thought it would be interesting if we asked you the following question. If you had a chance to preserve one song for the next 500 years, which song is that? Mm. Oh, I get to pick any song? Any, any song? song? Yeah, no pressure. Okay. Uh, Humanity is uh, on the, your shoulders. The Boys Are Back in Town by Thin Lizzy. Oh, <laughs> boys are back in town. That one? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. The other boys are back in town by Thin Lizzy. Come on. Just making sure. I'm a reporter. <laughs> you check your facts. Well, let's write out on The Boys Are Back in Town. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us Thank on The Cooler. Woo! Making history. First white, straight man <laughs> up in here. Thanks to our podcast papa, David Marcus. Thanks to Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs for our amazing theme song that you hear at the beginning of the show. Thank you to Howard Gelman behind the glass. And thanks to Jay Simpson for helping me edit. Until next week, find us on social media. I am Excuse My Beauty without the first D on Twitter. I am at Teacup in the Bay. I am at Jimmy Says. Follow us. Favorite our stuff. Retweet. Bye. Bye. Bye.